welcome to the Empowered Podcast. I'm your host, Robin Tudor, Certified Lifestyle Medicine Practitioner. My aim is to help everyday people understand science, not the science, and to use that understanding to make better choices for their health and well-being. Each episode, I'll be bringing my latest Substack post to you in audio form. For the full visual experience, including graphs, charts, images, and videos, view the accompanying post in my Empowered Substack. And now, let's dive in. Episode 64, I Informed You Thusly, Part 3, Molnupiravir Causes Transmissible Mutations in SARS-CoV-2. Okay, so I told you masks don't work to prevent respiratory virus infection and transmission, and now the latest Cochrane Review has confirmed that they don't work. That was I Informed You Thusly, Part 1. And I told you that neither influenza vaccines nor COVID-19 vaccines prevent infection with or transmission of the viruses associated with them. And now Dr. Anthony, I am the science, Fauci himself, has confirmed that neither they nor any other vaccines for respiratory diseases caused by viruses that replicate predominantly in the respiratory mucosa prevent infection or transmission. That was I Informed You Thusly, Part 2. Let's try for three for three. I told you back in May 2022 that Merck's antiviral drug Molnupiravir, sold under the brand name Legevrio, generated mutated versions of SARS-CoV-2 that were shed in recipients' nose and throat secretions and could potentially lead to new, transmissible variants of unknown virulence. Our fearless drug regulator, the Therapeutic Goods Administration, or TGA, airily dismissed the significance of this finding on the say-so of an unnamed, independent expert, in air quotes. And a quote from the TGA's Australian Public Assessment Report for Molnupiravir, quote, the likelihood of mutations resulting in a more virulent strain of SARS-CoV-2 from treatment with Molnupiravir over the long term has not been assessed. It is less likely, but unproven, that virus mutation induced by Molnupiravir will increase virulence of SARS-CoV-2, end of quote. As a result of the TGA's provisional approval of Molnupiravir, over 380,000 prescriptions for this 20-year-old drug, which has never been used before due to concerns about its mutagenicity, had been issued in Australia by December 2022. Australian health authorities are still heavily pushing its use, despite evidence of higher death rates in people treated with Molnupiravir compared to placebo, and despite the National Clinical Evidence Task Force in the UK recommending against it. And now an international team of researchers has produced compelling evidence that versions of SARS-CoV-2 with mutations consistent with the pattern induced by Molnupiravir are showing up in global sequence databases and that these viral variants are transmissible. To make sense of the new paper, which has not yet been peer-reviewed but was considered significant enough to garner a write-up in Nature, one of the world's most prestigious scientific journals, we need to do a quick review of Molnupiravir's mechanism of action. As I explained in my previous article, the great Molnupiravir swindle, quote, it works by creating errors in the virus's genetic code, known as mutagenesis. Each time the virus replicates in the presence of Molnupiravir, more and more errors accumulate eventually building up to an error catastrophe that stops the virus from functioning, end of quote. By the way, the authors of the new paper dispute the notion of error catastrophe, and I've included their argument as a footnote in the post accompanying this podcast episode for those interested in the finer points of this argument, so please go to that post if you're interested. The mutations produced in the viral genetic code by Molnupiravir are not random. Instead, they result in very specific substitutions in the four-letter nucleotide alphabet that spells out the viral genetic code. 
Briefly, in RNA viruses, including SARS-CoV-2, the genetic code is comprised of specific sequences of uracil, U, cytosine, C, adenine, A, and guanine, G. During the reading of the genetic code that results in protein formation, A and U always pair with each other, while C and G pair with each other. Each three-nucleotide sequence, known as a codon, represents an amino acid, and the order in which the nucleotides appear dictates the order in which amino acids are strung together to form a protein. And I've put a link in the article accompanying this podcast episode to uh, an excellent summary of this process, again, for those who want to delve deeper. Monupiravir results in substitution of adenine for guanine, that is a G to A mutation, and uracil for cytosine, a C to U mutation. This misspelling of the viral code results in masses of mutant virions, most of which are non-viable. That is, they're unable to do what viruses do to survive, which is to hijack the host cell's protein-macking apparatus in order to make more copies of themselves. However, some of these mutants are viable, and their signature mutations showed up in samples taken from participants in a clinical trial of molnupiravir. These same signature mutations can also be identified and tracked using the Global Viral Sequencing Databases, GIS-AID and INSDC. And that's exactly what the international team of researchers who wrote this recent paper did. They examined a mutation-annotated phylogenetic tree, which is a method for visually representing the relationships between the genetic sequences of various samples of SARS-CoV-2 that are uploaded to these global databases. I've put an example in the post accompanying this podcast episode. And they identified branches with multiple G to A and C to U substitutions consistent with monopiravir-driven mutation. Their analysis identified six key facts. The high G to A and C to U branches were almost all sampled in 2022, after monupiravir entered clinical use. Number two, the branches were predominantly sampled from a small number of countries, which could not be explained by differences in the number of uploaded sequences. Specifically, countries which exhibited a high proportion of these branches have been using monupiravir. These include Australia, Japan, the US and UK, while countries with high levels of total sequencing but a low number of these branches, such as Canada and France, did not approve the use of monupiravir. Number three, age metadata provided with uploaded viral sequences shows a significant bias toward patients with older ages for the branches with signature molnupiravir mutations. As the authors point out, quote, this is consistent with the prioritized use of molnupiravir to treat older individuals who are at greater risk from severe infection in these countries. In Australia, molnupiravir was pre-placed in aged care facilities and it was recommended that it be considered for all patients aged 70 or older with or without symptoms, end of quote. Number four, the mutation rate in the branches with a high G to A signature was higher than in branches lacking this signature. Number five, there were multiple examples of such branches giving rise to clusters with a significant number of descendant sequences, suggesting that the sequences derived from multiple individuals who were involved in an outbreak, for example, in a nursing home. Number six, other sequences showed patterns consistent with, quote, sequences resulting from chronically infected individuals who have been treated with multiple courses of molnupiravir, end of quote. And in the post accompanying this podcast episode, I've also reproduced a number of the figures and tables from this article, which tell the tale in graphical form. It's often easier to understand these points when you see the pictures rather than just hearing or reading the words.
So in summary, mutations consistent with molnupiravir's known mechanism of action and of the same types that were found in the nasopharyngeal secretions of people who took the drug in a clinical trial have shown up in global sequencing databases since molnupiravir began to be prescribed in the countries which are using it, in the age group for which it is approved, and in patterns which indicate that it is generating transmissible variants with high mutation rates. When it comes to the implication of their findings, the study authors take a cautious approach. They point out that they have not proved that the use of molnupiravir is driving the mutations that they identified, nor that these mutations are intrinsically more dangerous or transmissible. They call for, quote, public health authorities in countries showing these patterns to perform investigations to determine if these sequences or clusters can indeed be directly linked back to use of molnupiravir, end of quote. However, as co-author Theo Sanderson, a computational biologist at the Francis Crick Institute in London, stressed, quote, I would say that our work closes down the possibility that these viruses, that is molnupiravir mutated viruses, can never be transmitted, end of quote. And that quote was from the Nature magazine article on this preprint called COVID drug drives viral mutations and now some want to halt its use. Another quote from that article was from Rustem Ismagalov, a quantitative bioscientist at the California Institute of Technology in Pasadena, who was not involved in the study. Ismagalov stressed that it, quote, underscores the need to quickly measure any risk that molnupiravir poses in terms of sparking new variants and to weigh them against the drug's benefits, end of quote, adding, quote, if we are playing Russian roulette, we'd better know our odds, end of quote. All I can say is, good luck with that one. I'd lay odds on hell freezing over before any study on the adverse effects of molnupiravir secures funding. Given molnupiravir's lack of clinical benefit, the unanswered questions about its capacity to trigger cancer, and these latest findings that point to the strong possibility that it is driving variants with high mutation rates, any sane health authority would drop it like a hot brick. But the TGA continues to insist that it, quote, meets the high safety, efficacy and quality standards required for use in Australia, end of quote. One wonders how bad a drug has to be to not meet those standards, or perhaps the disqualifying criteria are actual safety and effectiveness, as with hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin. What can we ordinary folk do in the face of the complete regulatory capture that is driving unsafe, ineffective and inadequately tested products into the mouths and arms of Australians? First, if you have elderly relatives or friends, share this article with them so that they are forewarned and forearmed to just say no to any doctor who recommends that they take molnupiravir. Secondly, if you are the guardian of a person living in an aged care facility, put that facility on notice that your relative is not to be given molnupiravir. Thirdly, print this article out and take it to your local GP or community pharmacist. Ask them if they're prescribing or dispensing molnupiravir or Ligevrio, and if so, do they know that it is ineffective and that the UK's National Clinical Evidence Task Force has recommended against its use? Fourthly, phone or email your MP and request that they ask a question on notice about the TGA's continued recommendation of this drug in the face of overwhelming evidence of its lack of safety and efficacy and its disendorsement by the UK's National Clinical Evidence Task Force. And finally, share this article on social media. And lastly, thank you for slogging through the kind of boring technical bits in this episode and making it all the way to the end. Together, we're learning our way forward. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend and on your socials and make sure you subscribe to my Empowered Substack so you never miss a post.